is the first sermon in our Lenten series about the seven signs of Christ from the Gospel of John. So what is a sign? First of all, what's a sign? Sign is an event, almost always a miracle, that points to who Jesus is and what He came to do. So a sign in the book of John is something that Jesus does to tell us who He is. And as He does that, His life, this divine life He came to bring, breaks into our existence and gives us a preview of the fullness of that life that is to come when He returns in glory. You can think of these signs or these miracles as flowers budding in the spring. Much more is to come, but we can see those signs of life happening right now. And so these are the signs in the book of John that Jesus did. The purpose of a sign is to challenge us to believe, to discover who Jesus really is, and to have life through Him. John, in John 20, verses 30 and 31, at the end of the book, this is what he says. He says, now Jesus did many other signs. So we have seven we'll be looking at that are recorded. But John says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, who he is, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So today, we're looking at the first sign, the miracle at the wedding at Cana. So let me read for us John 2, verses 1 through 11. You can follow along in your Bibles or in the Pew Bibles, or just listen. John 2, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, than the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is God's word. Now, we are told at the very end of the passage that this sign, this first sign, was for the revelation of his glory. Jesus, by turning water into wine, manifested his glory. So let's first consider what glory is and how it can be manifested. And then secondly, we'll consider three ways in which he reveals his glory. And finally, I will challenge you to believe who he is and what he came 
to do. So what is glory? Now, biblically, glory is an expression of who God is. In the Old Testament, uh, often when you read about glory, it's presented as a kind of a radiance. There's light shining forth. There is the unmistakable uh, proof that God is there, that God is present with His people. Glory is God's character and nature put on display. God doesn't change who He is, but He expresses who He is. He reveals who He is in glory. In the New Testament, we are told that Jesus Christ, God who became human, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. This is from Hebrews 1 verse 3, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature. As a God-man, Jesus became a vehicle for the revelation of who God is, and we know who God is, what He's like, because we know Jesus. Jesus reveals God's nature and character. John 1.14 says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. We've seen His glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we've seen His glory. What kind of glory? Glory is a revelation of Jesus as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is God's nature, God's character being revealed, being displayed in Jesus. We can see the glory of God, whose nature is grace and truth, in the life of Jesus. Now let me give you an example of glory which gives me a chance to talk about Ukraine a little bit. Since uh, 2014, when Russians first invaded Crimea and and some of the eastern territories, there there has been a resurgence and a rediscovery of of Ukrainian national identity. So most people uh, switched to Ukrainian language and stopped speaking Russian, even they grew up, I grew up speaking Russian, and so many people started speaking Ukrainian, they've rediscovered Ukrainian culture, they started wearing more traditional Ukrainian clothes. And at that time, uh, a common greeting in Ukraine became, glory to Ukraine, and the response is, glory to the heroes of Ukraine. So, slava Ukraini, heroim slava. And this has now become a, a, basically like you would say hello on the street. This is what you would say. You would say glory to Ukraine, and the response would always be glory to the heroes of Ukraine. If you watch the news, if you watch Ukrainian news, every interview, every segment begins and ends with that. Uh, every uh, address of a politician uh, ends with that. Uh, this has become a common way of acknowledging the glory of Ukraine, the nature, the character of the Ukrainian people. And so here's what's happening now with this new conflict that Ukraine is in. All of that has become even more obvious, even more revealed and displayed. And so what we're seeing here as the glory of Ukraine, we're seeing the expression of the identity of Ukraine, of the character and the nature of Ukrainian people. In a crisis, that becomes displayed. It becomes, it's put in the forefront, and now we can see, and the world can see, the kind of people that Ukrainians are. So, for example, we're seeing the culture of Ukraine. Many people are rediscovering the culture of Ukraine. We're seeing the spirit of the Ukrainian people. 
we are seeing uh, the character, the resilience and defiance and hopefulness of Ukrainians. We are seeing the deep connection to the land that is a very Ukrainian thing. Part of the reason why people are not leaving is because they love their place. They love the land. There is humor on display. <laughs> I, I've been very sad and anxious this past you know, 11, 12 days, but I've also laughed very hard because so many jokes are coming out of this conflict. And as, even as people are crying and weeping and they're mourning loss of life and legitimate destruction, they're also laughing and they're making fun of the oppressors. And that is deeply Ukrainian. And so the glory of Ukraine, right? So the nature of the Ukrainian people, the nature of the uniquely Ukrainian response to this is now on display. That's the glory of Ukraine. We have seen endurance, uh, creativity, courage, readiness to sacrifice, even the, the certain lyricism of the Ukrainian culture. All of that is now put on display. So that's the glory of Ukraine. Something that was there, it was part of the nature and character of the people. It was part of the culture, and yet now it's put on display so we can say glory to Ukraine, meaning we want to see Ukraine as it is. We want it to be revealed and manifested. And we want to acknowledge it. We want to live in that reality. That's what's happening right now. In a similar way, when God's glory is revealed in Scripture or in your life, God's character and nature are put on display. So here in our passage, we are told that Jesus manifested his glory by turning water into wine at the wedding at Cana. And I think some people reading this passage will see this miracle as just a manifestation of Jesus' power, his control over the natural world, sort of a cool thing Jesus can do, right? But C.S. Lewis said that God doesn't do parlor tricks. God is not trying to impress us with something clever or, or cool. It's, it's not a trick. There are deep meanings in this miracle. There are deep revelations of who Jesus is. In other words, a manifestation of his glory. Not only as a powerful person, but as we will see at least in three other ways. There's a revelation of his glory. So let me walk you through it. First, we see in this passage the manifestation of the glory of the promised offspring. Promised offspring of the woman. And if you're confused, I will explain, okay? Give me a minute. Let's work through the text. Jesus and his mother are invited to, are invited to a wedding. Uh, of course, in that culture, as in many cultures today and at that time, even as it is now in those same cultures, weddings were huge celebrations lasting several days. And it was very important for the family, in this case the groom's family, to display their hospitality. The family would experience shame if something went wrong. And something did go wrong at Cana. They ran out of wine. Wine, of course, is essential to the celebration. So this was a real problem. It's a big deal. Real social problem, social embarrassment, probably something that was going to be remembered later. People would talk about that family, how they had a wedding and they ran out of wine. So it's a real problem. Mary, probably related to the groom's family, tries to get her son Jesus to help. 
Now, I'm not sure what Mary was expecting exactly, but Mary knew Jesus was special. There was something about him. She heard the prophecies. She, she was trying to put things together, so he was the right person to go and ask for help. So she goes to him, and as a good mother, just states the fact, they have no wine. Now, look at Jesus' response in verse 4. If you're reading it for the first time, this is completely unexpected. I mean, most of us, we know the passage, and you've read it so many times, you're expecting exactly what he says, but this is completely uncalled for. Jesus says in verse 4, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Woman... Why are you talking to me? This is not, this is, there's nothing to do with me. My hour has not yet come. This seems harsh, but I think Jesus' response reveals his glory. That the reason he's responding in this way is to reveal his glory. In this verse, Jesus' identity and mission are revealed. Now, if you listen very carefully, you just pause and very calmly just listen, you will hear the echoes of Genesis 3.15 in this response. Let me show you. Genesis 3.15 is God making a promise after the fall of Adam and Eve and addressing the serpent. This is what God says. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. By calling his mother woman, Jesus reveals himself to be the offspring of the woman who is promised to crush Satan's head. Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. Whenever in the Gospel of John you see this phrase, the hour or my hour, when Jesus talks about it, he's talking about the cross and the resurrection. He's talking about the time when he will defeat the enemy, when he will crush the head of the serpent. This is why he came. So when Mary comes to him and says, could you please help us with this wine problem? Jesus says, woman, Genesis 3.15, I am the offspring that that came to crush the head of the serpent. And you're asking me to fix the social embarrassment? My hour has not yet come. But when my hour comes, I will crush the serpent's head. I will liberate humanity from the power of Satan and sin and death. Jesus says, you think I'm just some miracle worker who can save your cousins from public embarrassment, but I am much bigger than you know. I am the promised redeemer of the world who by his death will defeat death and by his resurrection crush the enemy once and for all. And of course, this is what Jesus did. We know that. Mary's still anticipating that, but we know that we can look back And know that when Adam and Eve were deceived by the serpent and they rejected God's love and ate of the fruit of the tree, God said not to eat from, they were cursed. But Jesus became cursed for us on the tree. 
And through that substitution, through that sacrifice, He released us from the guilt of sin and the power of the accuser. So when Satan, that ancient serpent, the accuser of the brethren, comes to us now and speaks to us and tells us how much God is angry with us and how much He does not love us and how much He he means to destroy us and how much we are condemned by Him, Jesus says, I am the offspring of the woman. I came to defeat the accuser, and the accuser has nothing on you anymore. When Eve doubted, her offspring believed. And on the third day, notice that this passage begins with John saying, on the third day, it's not incidental. He's, he's wanting us to think about the cross and the resurrection So on the third day, when Jesus rose from the dead, he offered life to all who trust him. Adam's sin in the garden brought death, but Jesus' resurrection in the garden brings life. And I think Mary got it. I don't think she got everything, but I think she got enough. And certainly, she got enough to say, to turn to the other servants and to say, Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever this offspring of the woman, this redeemer, will tell you to do because whatever he's going to do is going to reveal these great redemptive purposes for humanity. Whatever he does, you listen to him and you do what he tells you to do. So the woman left the promised offspring to do what he came to do. That's the first aspect of his glory as the offspring of the the promised offspring of the woman. The second aspect is the glory of the master of the feast. The glory of the master of the feast. Jesus reveals his glory as the divine master of the feast who came to restore joy to his creation. Mary came to Jesus and simply said, they have no wine. She could have said, the party is over. In the Bible, wine is a symbol of joy. Psalm 104.15 says that God gave wine to gladden the heart of man. Now, I understand that many of us have a complicated relationship with alcohol. Some of us have had terrible experiences with alcohol. But that is because in the broken creation, good things can easily become harmful. It was not designed that way. And if you read the biblical descriptions of the world to come, we will be drinking there. And we will be enjoying, not abusing, not misusing, not being harmed by it, but we will be drinking wine in the new creation. So Mary's statement about running out of wine at the wedding can be taken as a diagnosis of the world without God and thus without joy. The world has not run out of wine yet, but it is running out of joy. Eugene Peterson, in 1980, wrote this passage that I'm going to read for you. I think it rings just as true today, and this is 40 years later. He says, We come to God and to the revelation of God's ways because none of us have it within ourselves except momentarily to be joyous. Joy is a product of abundance. 
It is the overflow of vitality. It is life working together harmoniously. It is exuberance. Inadequate sinners as we are, none of us can manage that for very long. And then he does some cultural commentary that applies today as well. He says, we try to get it through entertainment. We pay someone to make jokes, tell stories, perform dramatic actions, sing songs. We buy the vitality of another's imagination to divert and enliven our own poor lives. The enormous entertainment industry in America is a sign of the depletion of joy in our culture. Society is a bored, gluttonous king employing a court jester to divert it after an overindulgent meal. But that kind of joy never penetrates our lives, never changes our basic constitution. The effects are extremely temporary. A few minutes, a few hours, a few days at most. When we run out of money, the joy trickles away. We cannot make ourselves joyful. Joy cannot be commanded, purchased, or arranged. I wonder if it resonates with with you, because it does with me. It does with me both in the realization that I lack joy and in the realization that I try to get joy through bad means that can't give me the joy that I long for. We are becoming increasingly less joyful even as we are becoming increasingly more entertained. We are at a wedding, and we have no wine. There's further symbolism of Jesus' use of these six stone water jars that are used for Jewish rites of purification. By turning water into wine out of those jars, Jesus symbolically puts an end to our efforts at self-purification. There were six jars there, but seven were needed. Our work cannot restore joy to the world or our own hearts. We need the Sabbath joy of God, the seventh jar. We need God to come and redeem us so we can rest in His joy, in the exuberance and the vitality of God's life, in the overabundance of God's life. Jesus gives them much more wine than they need. 750 bottles of wine, I think somebody calculated it. This is 150, 180 gallons of wine. This is over the top because God is an exuberant giver. Because God's joy is an abundant joy. Jesus came to set up a new covenant, a covenant of grace. And this covenant rests on his own death and resurrection. His life was crushed like grapes in a winepress of God's fury. And then it was transformed by the resurrection. And this new life, like new wine, flows into his creation as it awaits the cosmic Sabbath of his kingdom at his return. Look at how Jesus himself describes this this reality of lacking joy and getting joy from God and waiting for more joy to come, all in the metaphor of drinking wine as he shares his last supper with his disciples. This is from Matthew 26, beginning in verse 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, 
And after blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then he says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is Jesus before the cross, saying what's going to come through the cross and will be fully revealed when he returns in glory. And at the wedding at Cana, Jesus revealed his glory as the master of the feast and restorer of the world's joy. As a poet once said, the water saw Jesus' glory and blushed. And thirdly, Jesus reveals his glory as the bridegroom of his people. He's the offspring, promised offspring of the woman. He is the, the divine master of the feast, but he is also the bridegroom of his people. The master of the feast that ultimately was responsible for all these different pieces that had to come together for the wedding wasn't just master of ceremonies. He was also uh, a caterer and, and an organizer of all sorts of logistics. Ultimately, he is the failed master of the feast. So he's very happy to see more wine coming. He assumes the credit goes to the groom. In verse 10, he says to the groom, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. But the disciples and the servants know that another bridegroom has provided the wine. I can't imagine that Jesus at this wedding at Cana, fulfilling the responsibilities of the groom by providing the wine, is not thinking about his own wedding. Anybody who goes to any wedding naturally thinks about their wedding. Whether you remember your wedding, or you look forward to your wedding, or you dream of your wedding. And so Jesus, too, longs for the wedding feast when he will celebrate his marriage in his kingdom. Who is his bride? It's the church, his people, all those belonging to the new covenant of his grace, all those redeemed by his death and resurrection, all those liberated from the power of the enemy, all those who believe in him. You are his bride. You are his bride. It is very likely that Jesus at the wedding in Cana was thinking about you and longing to celebrate marriage with you. When Jesus revealed his glory as the true master of the feast, it may have left you impressed but not personally moved. You know, we're talking about cosmic redemption and joy returning to the world. Those are big things. And we may be happy about it, but it may not affect me personally, my heart, my emotions. But redemption is both cosmic restoration and personal relationship. And Jesus restores joy to the world, and he also restores joy to you. 
Jesus supplies the joyous wine to the world and to you. I think of it this way. You may be at a wedding, and a baker brings a beautiful cake, and you rejoice, because at this wedding, people will be celebrating, and we will all enjoy this beautiful cake, and it's made specifically for this party. It's happy. But imagine if you are at your own wedding, and a baker is bringing your cake to you, and it's made especially for you, and you will be the first person to taste it. Jesus, the true bridegroom, will never run out of wine for you. And unlike at a normal human wedding, the wine served later is is not better, but with Jesus, the wine keeps getting better. His wine doesn't just run out, but it keeps getting better. It brings more and more joy. And our joy in this divine marriage keeps increasing. There's no end to it. We start here. You start at conversion. You start at meeting the bridegroom and accepting his promises of love and living in that anticipation, and you are already joyful. That joy increases with more manifestations of his glory, with greater experiences with him until finally it erupts at the wedding feast of the Lamb. Well, we will celebrate without any concern of anything running out, either us running out of joy or getting tired of celebrating or running out of wine or food or fellowship or worship. There's no end to joy with Jesus. So let me end by challenging you to believe. Because our passage ends... Uh, in verse 11, that his disciples believed in him. They saw the sign. They saw where the sign is pointing. They saw that this is God's, God's power breaking into this existence, into this world, that this is the master of the feast coming to restore joy. This is the offspring of the woman coming to defeat our enemy. This is our bridegroom coming in. They saw it and they believed. They've trusted him. They've embraced him. They've connected with him. So my question to all of us this morning is, do you believe? Have you been changed like water into wine? Become new creation. Not just same old water, but wine. Do you believe there is joy in him that needs to be restored into your life and into the world? And there is joy through him do you see it? Are you experiencing it? Are you living it? Do you believe that He will return for you and that you will feast with Him? Andy Crouch, uh, who commented on this, this passage in, in, in a book, he says, ultimately, of course, this story is not just about water, wine, or weddings. It is a story of a sign. Something that points beyond itself to a deeper well of meaning. And the story of the sign begins with an unmistakable signpost, the chronological note at the beginning of John 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding. For John, 
for his first readers and for us, the third day is a signpost to the greatest of all signs. The first miracle where Jesus' glory is revealed is a foreshadowing and foretaste of the ultimate miracle and revelation of his glory. He's talking about the resurrection. With power this glorious, loose in the world, why would we settle for anything less? The more I walk with Christ, and I'm sure many of you would agree with me, the more I am convinced that the question we pose to unbelievers is not, why should anyone believe? Why should you believe? Let me tell you why should you believe. I think the real question is, why wouldn't you believe this? Why wouldn't you embrace this Jesus, this bridegroom, this master of the feast, this promised redeemer? 